millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi there! Welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me live via satellite is my mom! Hi, Mom! Hi, Chandler! How are you? I'm doing very well. Are you ready to begin another grand experiment? Absolutely. I'm very ready. Let's go! All right, let's give it a whirl! Okay, awesome. And I just want to say hello, everyone around the world. It's so lovely that you are here joining us today. We're very excited to bring you another show, and we're so happy that you're there and listening. Yes, uh, hello to uh, all of our fans uh, all around this great country of ours, all around this wonderful world. Uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, if this is your first episode of History in Retrograde, we'd like to welcome you. Uh, the way that we do things here is that uh, in a moment, I will give the astrological birth data of a random historical figure to my mother. She will then input that data into the back computer, and out will come the astrological birth chart, where all of the planets, moons, and stars were at the moment that that person was born. She will then do her best to give us a blind reading of that chart, uh, telling us about the person's personality traits, characteristics, fortunes uh, of this historical figure. Uh, I will then reveal to her who our uh, mystery history guest is, give a little background about the person, then we'll come together at the end decide how accurate the chart was at predicting what that person would do. Without any further ado, let us begin. Okay. This is a male. All right. Born on the 3rd okay. of December. All right. 1826. Okay. Do we have a time? 12.15 a.m. Oh, what? That's awesome. Did you say 15? 15, yes. 15. Okay. And where in the world? The United States. Uh-huh. And what town? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Wow, I didn't realize we had so many Philadelphias in the United States. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, my. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have pulled this chart up 
with Placidus houses, and we're just going to read it Placidus. I actually prefer Placidus. So um, now <laughs> I'm on this whole new uh, train of just reading the houses Placidus with the interceptions or whatever comes up. So that's what we're doing this season, Chandler. <laughs> Are you ready to go? Yeah. Okay. So um, this person clearly has a lot of fourth and fifth, fifth house. Uh, blah, blah. I can't talk. Fourth and fifth house planets. You see all this, Chandler? Mm -hmm, very concentrated. Uh-huh. Okay. So um, very interesting. So this person, I'm just going to start with all the planets, okay? So the sun is at 10 degrees Sagittarius. The moon is at 2 degrees. Wow, I really cannot talk today. This is pure Mercury retrograde right now. That's hilarious. All right, let me try it again. Hmm, let's see if my mouth will work with my brain today. So sun is at 10 degrees Sagittarius. Moon is at 2 degrees Aquarius. Mercury is at 0 degrees Capricorn. Venus is at 9 degrees Capricorn. Mars is at 10 degrees Aquarius. Jupiter is at 9 degrees Libra. Saturn is at 4 degrees Cancer. Uranus at 21 degrees Capricorn. Neptune at 12 degrees. Whoa, 12 degrees Capricorn. That's a lot of Capricorn. Uh, Pluto is at three degrees Aries. And the North Node is at 23 degrees Scorpio. With Chiron at 21 degrees Aries. And the Ascendant, the rising sign, at 18 degrees Virgo. With the Midhaven at 16 degrees Gemini. Wow. Whew, this is a lot. Okay, so let's start with the rising sign, which is Virgo at 18 degrees. Um, this person doesn't have any planets in Virgo, but uh, with Placidus house system, their Jupiter in Libra falls in their first house. Now, with that said, we know that when people have Libra in their first house or planets in Libra in their first house, um, it can make them very pretty. So perhaps this gentleman was very handsome. Now, Jupiter or the moon in your first house can make you uh, very Bacchus-y because it's Jupiter and Bacchus is the son of Jupiter. And so with that in mind, it is uh, possible that this person could be a little more round because they do enjoy um, all of the things that are offered, um, all the foods, all the drinks, but Definitely should be very attractive with that Jupiter there. And lucky, kind of lucky in uh, maybe how they are perceived upon first uh, meeting and, and how people see them. Um, they could be famous. 
Well, they probably are famous because we're doing their chart. So uh, then the second house cusp is Libra, which puts Venus in their second house. So Venus ruling their second house, you know, uh, Venus rules Libra. So Venus is ruling their second house. And although they don't have any planets in their second house, they should be very lucky with finances and valuables and their values and uh love um lovely things uh third house cusp is scorpio they have north node in scorpio in the third house of communication and their sun in sagittarius at 10 degrees falls in that house so there is something about mm, their direction having to do with uh, Plutonian things or their direction, because it's North Node, it's what you're supposed to do, uh, could have a lot of stops and starts because it's ruled by Pluto because it's in Scorpio. Their communication, say if they were an author, they could write about dark things, um, ghost stories, uh, things like that. Uh, or they could communicate about things that are uh, of the underworld or um, taboo things. They could also just be like an undertaker uh, because North Node and Scorpio, death and rebirth, no issues with icky stuff very okay with it. And their son is in Sagittarius in that same house. So again, something to do with communication, siblings, childhood, um, and it's the sun. So it lights that area. So somehow it is possible their son is lightening their North Node in Scorpio, which is dark things. But Scorpio also was ruled by Mars. So originally Scorpio was ruled by Mars. So it could have something to do with Martian things. Very passionate, very motivated. Um, sun in Scorpio is going to make this person very cavalier. I mean, sorry, Sun in, in Sagittarius is going to make this person very cavalier, very gallant, should be. Um, then. <laughs> Then we get to this stellium in Capricorn that they have, which starts with their fourth house cusp is Sagittarius, but they have three planets in Capricorn in their fourth house and one planet in Capricorn in their fifth house. Uh, so let's just start with zero degrees Mercury in Capricorn. So zero degrees as we know, is a very important degree, zero and 29. Zero is the first degree of a nice sign. So it is mm, kind of the birth, the uh, intensity of that sign. So Mercury in Capricorn at zero degrees is going to be a way of very precise uh, communication 
possibly um, having to do with uh, business, entrepreneurship, um, but uh, not precise like a Virgo. Like Mercury in Virgo would be very precise and very mathematical, but it would be um, fast. Uh, Mercury in Capricorn is not fast because they want to make sure that they say it once, sort of like a concept of saying this and meaning it. So they go over it a lot before they say it. So they're very um, considerate of what they're saying. And sometimes for people who have Mercury and Gemini, Mercury and, and faster signs, air signs, they're like, oh, just say it, you know. But the Mercury and Capricorn, you have to be patient with them because they are they're taking such care to make sure that they're saying it properly. Then we have Venus at nine degrees Capricorn. So Venus is how you love what you love. Uh, and having Venus in Capricorn makes you love um, maybe even like uh, an older woman, um, a uh, more mature woman, women who have their own businesses, women who are uh, business-minded, women who are famous, women who are in the public eye as, uh, if you, if you were to, if I were to put a woman to match up with this Venus in Capricorn, I would say Queen of Pentacles in the Tarot. Okay. So, a uh, specific kind of woman, um, man with a Venus in Capricorn. Um, is any of this making sense? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And then Neptune at 12 degrees Capricorn conjunct that Venus. That could be a very interesting, romantic, uh, poetic, because Neptune is your imagination. Neptune is the veil. Neptune is um, spiritual healing. Neptune also can be addictions. So, I mean, dark side would be this person, because Capricorn can be addicted, the same as like Pisces can be addicted. Uh, but Capricorn can also be addicted to things that are not necessarily drugs or alcohol. They can be addicted to money. They can be addicted to um, habits. Okay. So Neptune and Capricorn can't. Light side would be, uh, it would lighten all this Capricorn a little bit because it would make it a little less intense. It would make it a little more creative. And then Uranus in Capricorn uh, in the fifth house, because we have the houses change right here. You see Chandler. Mm -hmm. So all of that is in their fourth house. Okay. This, this Mercury and this Venus and this Neptune are all in their fourth house, which is the house of home and private thoughts and private feelings and family and community and country and everything that you consider to be home. And then fifth house is where they have their Uranus in Capricorn and their fifth house cusp is ruled by Capricorn. So they have a very business way of approaching show business, leadership, 
uh, children, um, romance, uh, uh, entertainment, entertaining. All of those are fifth house stuff because it's ruled by Leo. And they have Uranus there, which would definitely <laughs> bring in some unexpected uh I'm going to say unexpected Capricorn things. So unexpected, like business situations, unexpected or very creative or um, cutting edge uh, concepts with regard to that. Then they have their moon at two degrees Aquarius and their Mars at 10 degrees Aquarius in that house. So Uranus rules Aquarius. They have Uranus in Capricorn. Uranus rules Aquarius. They have Moon and Mars in Aquarius. So this person, your Mars is your passion. Your Mars is your goal setting. Your Mars is what you uh, go after. For a man, it is his masculinity, if this man is identifies as masculine. It's his masculinity. And his masculinity is Saturnian also because Saturn used to rule Aquarius for many in Vedic. It still does rule Aquarius. Um, so this man is unique. He should be mm, forward thinking. He should be smart. He should be um, very, uh, inventive and his emotions are connected to that by degree. His moon is conjunct his Mars by degree because his moon is at two degrees. His Mars is at 10 degrees Aquarius. So very inventive. And I would say with possibly show business, Sixth house cusp is ruled by Aquarius. He has a different way of approaching work, his day-to-day -day work. Uh, he's inventive with this, but also creative because uh, we're working with Placidus houses. Um, Partway through, his sixth house moves into Pisces. So he doesn't have any planets in Pisces or Aquarius in his sixth house, but um, it would give him an inventive, creative way of pursuing his day-to-day -day work. His seventh house cusp is Pisces. Um, and he has Pluto in Aries at three degrees in that house. So Pluto in Aries is fiery power. Hmm. Uh, and, and partnerships and... Potential death and rebirth of partnerships. Um, very interesting. Fiery partners. Fiery powerful partners. Uh, his eighth house cusp is Aries and he has Chiron at 21 degrees in the eighth house. Chiron is the wounded healer. Eighth house is ruled by Pluto, which is death and rebirth. It is um, legacy. It is inheritances. It is secret things. It is uh, taboo things. 
and somehow this person has Chiron there. So maybe they are healing. Hmm. Maybe healing or um, very good at warlike things. Maybe darkness from war. Aries things. Uh, passionate things. Then the ninth house cusp is Taurus. We don't have anything in the ninth house, but uh, that would be a very strong connection to your education, your dogma, your religion, your travel, um, higher learning. And then this person's midhaven is in Gemini, which could give them um, a career in communication, writing, uh, communicating. Um, uh, an, uh, an, an even like an interpreter languages, then um, the tenth house cusp is Gemini, and they have Saturn in Cancer at four degrees in the tenth house. So lessons with nurturing uh, in your career. So here we have eighth house legacy with Chiron in it, nurturing, healing potential dark things or death and rebirth with healing. And then we have Saturn in, I mean, sorry. Yeah. Saturn in cancer, which is nurturing in the 10th house. 11th house cusp is cancer, which would be nurturing 11th house, which is groups of people, friendships, things like that. 12th house cusp is Leo. There's nothing in that, but that could potentially be karma with leading or show business. So is this still making sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have any questions? How would groups of people react to him? Well, he doesn't have any planets in his 11th house, which is where groups of people would be found. But he does have cancer on his 11th house, which is very nurturing. So I believe that people would, you know, if this is a good person, which I always like to think they are good, um, people would uh, feel nurtured by this person somehow. And he might entertain them. Because halfway through, he's got Leo, you know. What do you think he'd do for a living? Well, you know me. He's got all this stuff in his fourth and his fifth house. So I think somehow he would be associated with show business. But it's Capricorn. So I want to say that either he would be an, an executive in whatever he does, or he would be uh, an entrepreneur, possibly... Like uh, having something to do maybe with show business or because I think he's handsome and he's got this Uranus moon and Mars in the fifth house. And I think it's kind of cutting edge, whatever he's doing, but he has fourth house. He's got this stellium in, in Capricorn. It's, it's got to be business or 
making money. He's definitely, I mean, Capricorns, when they're in their good space, are very, uh, I mean, when they're in a good spot, they're, they're very good providers and um, inventive with how they make money. How would he do in a fight? Well, he does have Sun in Sagittarius. Yes, Pluto and Chiron in Aries. He definitely has uh, what you would need to have a temper. Okay. But a lot of times when you have people that have Capricorn placements, I would think that's a lot of strategy. So I would think that it's possible he would uh, strategize his way to win. Like, in other words, a Capricorn who, well, I mean, Capricorns just in general have this magical ability to, uh, they can mess with people's heads. So it's possible that he not only with the, <laughs> with the Sag and the North Node in Scorpio and the Pluto and Chiron in Aries. It's possible. I mean, it's possible he could totally beat them up physically, like completely. But um, there would be a lot of planning and thought involved with that because he could not only beat them up physically, he could beat them up mentally. He, he has the potential. I mean, it's in his chart. How does he see himself? I think he thinks he's pretty. <laughs> he has Jupiter in Libra in the first house. So I think he should have a lot of self-confidence. I don't think he has uh, an issue with self-confidence. He does have Mercury, Venus, and Neptune in the fourth house, which is your own private thoughts. So dark side of Capricorn could be uh, an issue. But I'm, I'm going with I think this person is okay with himself. Would he be more likely to show up at a country club or a Cracker Barrel? You know, I, I'm feeling country club. He does have sun in Sagittarius, which could make him a little more earthy. But, I mean, he should be able to walk right into a country club with all this Capricorn. And this North Node in Scorpio. North Node Scorpios like nice things. And Venus in the first house, with first house being Virgo. I'm going to lean towards the country club. Is this a spontaneous man? I want to say no, because this is an awful lot of Capricorn, and Capricorns are well known for their planning skills. He does have sun in Sagittarius, which could make him more spontaneous in his youth. His Pluto and Chiron in Aries could also make him spontaneous and capable of just like having a thought and going towards it. But I really feel that this Saturn in um, Cancer and the Stellium in Capricorn 
And these planets in Aquarius are going to make him more thoughtful. He has the ability and the strength and the passion to go after things, like just go. But there's a part of him that makes him, or it should, make him think and plan more. What is his relationship to his country? I would think he is very dedicated to his country. He has three planets in Capricorn in his fourth house. Um, Capricorns can be very dedicated. Uh, so I would think he, good side, good side of a Capricorn is to be very dedicated and fatherly and, and responsible. Dark side of Capricorn is to be a very good spy. <laughs> because <laughs> Capricorns can be very manipulative as in like they have this magic power to plan things right so if they want to use their dark side they can plan espionage and be really good at it do you think he'd be an optimist or a pessimist I think that Jupiter in Libra in his first house would lead him to be an optimist. There is an issue with all this Capricorn and this North Node in Scorpio. Um, dark side of Capricorn um, possibly could be attachment to things that you've lost uh, or things that you think you're not good enough at or things like that. Um, I want to lean towards optimist because of the Jupiter um, opposing his Pluto in Aries and this fire and air and fire and air. Uh, uh, it's hard to say. I I want to think he's an optimist, but part of me thinks that's mm, a lot of Capricorn and Aquarius and North Node in Scorpio and Saturn in Cancer, which could make this person pensive or question a lot of things, like think about a lot of things, you know, and keep it to themselves. What is his legacy? Well, he has Chiron in the eighth house in Aries. Chiron is the wounded healer. So I'm something that has to do with Martian things, possibly connected to war and or uh, other um goals and conquering and leadership and the eighth house should be uh some something that has to do with healing if he's doing it right it's about healing okay healing people from dark things I don't know. I mean, this this Scorp North Node in Scorpio in the third house communicating about mm, occult things or, I mean, that's like, but also, again, 
uh, something that has to do possibly with Mars and warlike things. But, I mean, he's got all this Capricorn, so he could have been a, a mogul, you know? Do you have any final first impressions? I want to say that I feel this person was probably deeper. And there are layers of this person beneath what the surface of what most people thought. Because he has this Jupiter in Libra in the first house, which would make him appear almost, you know, just really pretty and and handsome and um, gregarious. But with this North Node in Scorpio and all this Capricorn and this Moon and Mars in Aquarius, there's like these layers to this guy that You'd have to really get to know him because Pluto in the seventh house is also going to make this person kind of, because uh, it's Pluto, so maybe secretive. I don't know. I could be, I have no idea. That's a lot of Capricorn. <laughs> well, at this point, I think we're ready for a summary of our findings. Okay. <laughs> First thing you said is that he'd be very handsome. Uh, he could be a bit on the round side. Uh, he'd be very lucky. And people would see him as being lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, he would be lucky with finances and valuables. He would love lovely things. Mm -hmm. uh, his direction, uh, there is uh, death and rebirth and power tied with his direction. The direction mm -hmm. uh, might have lots of starts and stops. Mm -hmm. uh, he could communicate about dark or secret things. Mm -hmm. uh, he could be very cavalier, gallant. Mm -hmm. uh, he would be very precise in his communication. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, could be dealing with business uh, somewhat of an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, he would not be a fast communicator, a very mm -hmm. deliberate speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, he would uh, be attracted to a more mature woman, someone who um, was already established in her life. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, has an interesting uh, romantic and poetic life. Uh, he could be addicted to money and habits. Mm -hmm. uh, there uh, is business. The business was uh, approaching leadership and romance. Uh, mm -hmm. unexpected business situations. Mm -hmm. uh, he would be coming up with a lot of cutting-edge concepts. Mm -hmm. um, his uh, masculinity would be unique, uh, forward-thinking, inventive. Mm -hmm. His emotions are connected to his uniqueness. Mm -hmm. uh, there would be a different way of approaching work. Mm -hmm. There's a death and rebirth of partnerships and powerful partnerships. Mm -hmm. Uh, he would be good at healing people's darkness. Uh, mm -hmm. He could be good at warlike things. Uh, he would be uh, communicating. Uh, communication is part of his career. He could be an interpreter and know a lot of languages. Mm -hmm. uh, there are lessons with nurturing in his career. Mm -hmm. uh, he would be good at nurturing groups of people. Mm -hmm. uh, there's karma with leadership. Mm -hmm. People would feel nurtured by him. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there is uh, something show business about him, uh, possibly an executive entrepreneur. Uh, he has an innovative way with money. Mm-hmm. He could have a temper. Uh, he would be an expert strategizer. Uh, he would strategize to win. He could possibly manipulate and mess with people's minds. Mm-hmm. He thinks he is pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would have a lot of <laughs> self-confidence. Uh, if given the option of a country club or Cracker Barrel, he would most likely choose the country club. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is not spontaneous. He is a planner. He is mm-hmm. thoughtful. He mm-hmm. thinks and plans before he acts. Mm-hmm. He would be dedicated to his country. Uh, on the other side, he could uh, be very manipulative and good at espionage. <laughs> There is, uh, he could possibly be an optimist, uh, but he might be plagued with an attachment to lost things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is hard to say uh, about optimism and pessimism. Uh, he is pensive. Uh, he would question mm-hmm. a lot of things privately. Mm-hmm. War is tied to his legacy. Uh, he has goals uh, and leadership that are tied to his legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, healing people from dark things is part mm-hmm. of his legacy. He would be a deep person. They are layers beneath what others think of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would appear handsome and gregarious, uh, but he could be very secretive. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything that I've left out? <laughs> No, but I really, uh, I'm very nervous about this. <laughs> are you ready to find out whose chart you've been looking at? Yes, I hope I know who they are. Uh, so uh, before I reveal, I would like to say that this uh, was another fan suggestion. Uh, so uh, Nathan, who was one of our uh, earliest fans, has been listening uh, since the very first episodes of the show, uh, brought this idea to me. Uh, so uh, thank you, Nathan. Uh, this is the astrological birth chart of General George B. McClellan. Uh, McClellan uh, was a Union general in the Civil War, and he uh, was uh, best known for for being fired. Uh, (gasps) So uh, Lincoln uh, uh, fired McClellan uh, after the Battle of Antietam, uh, believing that he uh, was not acting fast enough uh, in pursuing the enemy. (gasps) Uh, And uh, so that's... uh, McClellan would later go on the next year to run for president against Lincoln. He uh, ran uh, for the Democratic Party in 1864, uh, trying to promise a quick end to the war. Uh, So uh, McClellan uh, was one of the... um, uh, and and even though Lincoln and many of those in the administration did not like him, he was very beloved uh, by the troops themselves and by wow. uh, people all across the nation. Uh, so uh, we're going to take a bit of a deeper dive into McClellan and see. Um, I, I think there's a lot of things in the chart that, that will make a lot of sense once you learn about his whole life. Okay. Uh, So, uh, George Brinton McClellan, uh, he was born the middle of five uh, children uh, in Philadelphia to uh, Elizabeth and George McClellan. 
1826. Uh, Dr. George McClellan, uh, his father, uh, founded Jefferson College, uh, which uh, Dr. Anson Jones, uh, who we've uh, done on this uh, podcast, the last president of Texas, um, he attended Jefferson College, uh, and that's where he got his medical degree, was from the college that uh, McClellan's father founded. Wow. Uh, growing up, McClellan grew up in a wealthy family. He had the very best of education, private uh, tutelage. Um, uh, he he, he uh, was expected at first to go into his father's line of profession, but um, his older brother decided to take up the medical career. And so uh, McClellan excelled in his studies and he uh, went to college at the University of Pennsylvania uh, mm. when he was 14 years old. Wow. Uh, by the age of 15, he was accepted to West Point. Uh, and uh, he went to West Point and was one of uh, uh, one of the great students in his class. And while he was there, he didn't really get along with those uh, who were there from his uh, section, from, from the North. Uh, he got along much better with the aristocratic uh, sons of mm. uh, the Southern planters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, saw eye to eye with them on uh, their, their gentlemanly pursuits, and, uh, the, and f- uh, he really did think of himself as more elite uh, than other people. So he uh, was best friends with Pickett and Wilcox and Hill, all of which uh, he would end up fighting uh, on the field of battle some 40 years later. Wow. Uh, so uh, in 1846, uh, he graduated West Point. He was second in his class. Mm. Uh, he, uh, in 1846, the Mexican-American War breaks out. So uh, after graduating, uh, he spent a little bit of time in the Corps of Engineers, but then was sent uh, to the war. And so uh, he arrived in Corpus Christi, Texas in uh, October of 1846. Uh, the ship's log, uh, noting the, the material that he had brought with him, uh, he brought a shotgun, two pistols, a saber, a dress sword, and a bowie knife. Wow. Uh, which I recommend anyone going to Corpus Christi take all of those things with you. Uh, during the uh, Mexican-American War, uh, he learned a lot of lessons. Uh, it was kind of like uh, going through uh, uh, another uh, set of, of college classes. Now you're you're on the field training, and a lot of things that he would learn and take with him uh, into the Civil War. Uh, so uh, he learned about flanking maneuvers uh, and uh, would use uh, his knowledge of, of how uh, Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott used flanking maneuvers in the war to his advantage later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also uh, learned about siege tactics during the Siege of Veracruz, and uh, that was another thing that he took with him later on. Uh, he also saw how Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott navigated their uh, difficult role of being not only a military leader, but a political leader as well. So dealing with the politics of the government, of doing what the president wants you to do, uh, along with the military reality of what you're actually able to do. He saw how those men navigated that, and that would become uh, very important to him later on. Mm -hmm. He also uh, developed a a disdain uh, for the volunteers, for the militia. Uh, He considered them undisciplined, and an undisciplined fighting force uh, is not worth anything to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He considered them rabble. Uh, so uh, he he really uh, a lot of the things that would come up later on in his military career were cemented during the Mexican-American War. Uh, throughout the war, he rose from a brevet second lieutenant uh, to a captain of his own company. 
so uh, uh, he had a quite a, uh, he, and he was present at the battles of uh, Contreras, Churubusco, and Veracruz. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the Mexican-American War, he remained in the army. And he served in the Army Corps of Engineers. And so he uh, would go to a lot of the forts, uh, either in the frontier or in the interior, uh, help them in building uh, bridges and forts and masonry and all sorts of things. Uh, he was also uh, uh, involved in different um, expeditions. So one of them was to discover the source of the Red River. Uh, and so uh, in Arkansas, uh, there is a creek uh, named McClellan's Creek named after him because he discovered uh, the North Fork of the Red River, where the source of it came from. Uh, in 1852, he was sent to uh, the Department of Texas, uh, and he started a relationship with the Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis. And Jefferson Davis liked McClellan a great deal and mm-hmm. uh, really took him under his wing, made sure that he had the best assignments for his career. Uh, and during this time, people are figuring out uh, the Transcontinental Railroad. How are We now have all of this land stretching from Maine to California. How are we going to connect it all by rail? Uh, we need to figure out the best uh, passages uh, to get this railroad through. And uh, McClellan is sent by uh, Jefferson Davis uh, to uh, figure out how uh, the railroad is going to connect up in uh, what is now Washington State. Uh, There uh, was more uh, discovery of railroad routes uh, throughout uh, the West and then uh, into the interior. In 1855, Jefferson Davis again taking him under his wing. There is a need for... um, military personnel to go and examine uh, what uh, the tactics of the new war being fought in Crimea uh, are. So hmm. we remember to earlier uh, in our uh, season, uh, we talked about Mary Seacole, uh, who was a nurse uh, during mm-hmm. the Crimean War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the, the, so this war is going on in the 1850s. The United States uh, sends its uh, military, uh, some people, some officers, to see how the new technologies are affecting the way that war is fought. And McClellan was chosen by Secretary Davis to go and uh, witness uh, and report back about the Crimean War. Uh, when he uh, comes back, he makes a uh, report, uh, and he also uh, makes a, a new cavalry manual uh, talking about the new tactics being used by the Russians and by the English and the French in this war. Wow. And that becomes the cavalry manual that would be used throughout the Civil War. He also develops a new saddle uh, called the McClellan Saddle, and that is uh, what would be used uh, throughout the Civil War and into the uh, Indian Wars in the 1860s and 70s. Uh, He uh, continues being sent on a lot of these different railroad uh, things to try and figure out the best routes uh, of connecting the country. So uh, he starts uh, uh, going to New York a lot, and he starts courting a woman named uh, Mary Ellen uh, Marcy. And Marcy was the daughter of one of his uh, commanding officers. And Mary Ellen, uh, Ellen, uh, she was... uh, uh, wanted she was courted by a lot of men mm-hmm. uh, a lot of officers wanted her hand in marriage in fact she was given nine proposals uh, wow. that she uh, turned them all down uh, he uh, in fact had met her earlier in 1855 and proposed to her and she rejected him 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Ellen uh, would end up getting a proposal from A.P. Hill, who was uh, one of those uh, Southern uh, officers who trained with McClellan. She accepted that offer, but her family did not uh, agree with the marriage, and mm-hmm. so uh, they did not get married. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then uh, some proposals later, a few years, you get into 1860, and on May 22nd, 1860, uh, Ellen and uh, uh, George were married. Oh, uh, so that he uh, resigned. Uh, he had resigned the uh, from the army in 1857. And uh, while well, he's already been doing all this work with the railroad company, so they start asking him to serve on their boards and he becomes an executive for the railroad companies. Uh, and this makes him a lot of money. Uh, so uh, and he becomes uh, intricately connected and understanding the uh, travel and trade routes uh, going on throughout uh, the uh, northern part of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1860, uh, Abraham Lincoln is elected president in November. By December, uh, the first southern states begin seceding. And in April, uh, 11 states uh, had seceded from the Union uh, and uh began the Civil War. Uh, McClellan was on the short list of many people uh, to uh, serve uh, in their regiments. Uh, So uh, the states of Ohio, New York, and Pennsylvania all wanted him to be the commanding general of their forces. In fact, they all sent offers to him, and they all sent them on the same day. Wow. Uh, But he was in Illinois and he was traveling and he meets with the governor of Ohio. He wants to go to his native state of Pennsylvania to lead those troops. But the governor of Ohio asks him in person uh, to uh, uh, lead these troops and he takes that commission. The next day he gets the letters from New York and Pennsylvania that they were asking him as well. Um, And uh, he uh, had to reject those offers. Uh, so he becomes the commander of the uh, Volunteers of uh, uh, of Ohio, and uh, from April 23rd to May 3rd, uh, he is first uh, given the command of the uh, Department of Ohio. Uh, then uh, he, uh, on May 14th, 1861, at the age of 34 years old, was made a Major General in the U.S. Army. Uh, he was the second highest ranked officer in the entire army, wow. uh, right under uh, Major General Winfield Scott, all at the age of 34. That is an amazing rise to power mm-hmm. uh, and really showed uh, uh, what everyone uh, thought of him and, and uh, all of the things that he had been doing uh, between the Mexican War and uh, the Civil War. Uh, so uh, the, he is now a uh, major general uh, in the uh, Union Army. Uh, and on July 11th, uh, 1861, a lot of people think that the after Fort Sumter, the first battle is going to be first Manassas, but there was actually a battle in between. And that happens in what is now West Virginia. So West Virginia was not a state in 1861. It was just the western part of Virginia. But when the state of Virginia seceded from the Union, the counties that were up in the uh, western part did not agree with this. They did not want to leave the Union. They wanted to stay. 
And so uh, they're, uh, they were trying to secede from the state that had seceded. They were trying to secede from the state of Virginia. And so these uh, counties uh, were welcoming to Union troops to come in and help repel the Confederate forces inside of these counties. And so there was a battle fought at Rich Mountain, and uh, McClelland was part of this. And there are... Uh, I think that when you read descriptions of this battle, there are a lot of people who uh, are maybe looking at this with a little bit too much hindsight. And so mm-hmm. they're trying to put the things that he did wrong in the other battles and have it start at this battle. But uh, And I, I will let everyone know that I am a victim of my public school education. <laughs> uh, so uh, I uh, and in public school, they don't tell you about the wars. They say that the wars are just the uh, parts in between the interesting parts of history, that it's just <laughs> a dash between two years and that all you need to know are the causes and then what happens after the war. Uh, so I'm not going to try and bog you down in all of the details of these battles, but there are uh, there, there's some interesting points into the character of McClellan that come out uh, here. Uh, So uh, there are a lot of people who start talking about that McClellan uh, hesitated too much, that he always felt that he never had enough men. He he thought that the Confederate forces were much larger than his, and he wanted to have overwhelming superiority and numbers before he did anything. Uh, and uh, there was always this complaint that he never followed through, that he would win a victory, but then not chase after the Confederate forces afterwards. Uh, so these start popping up during this first battle in 1861, uh, but it was a success. Uh, it was a victory. And those states did secede and they became the state of West Virginia. I'm not sure how many people, how many of our listeners in West Virginia uh, know that uh, McClelland is part uh, in due to thank uh, for their state uh, becoming one in the Union. <laughs> um, well, so there were some criticisms here, but then 10 days later, there's the Battle of First Manassas. And that was an abject failure for the Union. Uh, so when you start Comparing the two, you have one that was a complete defeat uh, with the Union forces uh, skedaddling. They called it the Great Skedaddle as they went back to Washington, D.C., uh, and the Confederate cho- uh, forces chasing after them. Uh, and But 10 days earlier, they had had a victory. Well, now McClellan's name starts coming up more and more as this great general that he knows what he's doing. And so uh, in the uh, summer of uh, 1861, uh, Abraham Lincoln, the president, president, uh, calls on General McClelland uh, to be the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, And uh, as he is leaving from West Virginia, going to D.C., everywhere he goes, train stops, uh, 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 stations everywhere, there's huge cheers and yells for McClelland. Mm -hmm. Everyone loves him and cheers him wherever he goes. Uh, So uh, Lincoln gives him this command, and it was up to him to completely reorganize the army. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were uh, the the Union Army was completely unprepared uh, for the war that they were now about to fight. Uh, So the first thing he does is make defenses around Washington, D.C., um, and uh, he starts having these conflicts with Winfield Scott. So Scott was this great hero of the Mexican-American War. He's the commander of the American uh, Army during this war. And 
And Scott uh, believed in this idea, uh, it was called the Anaconda, to try and strangle the South uh, by cutting off uh, the western portion of the uh, Confederate States from the eastern portion, and then uh, going after uh, in the smaller battles. Uh, whereas uh, McClellan, now studying what they've done in Crimea, and really studying what Napoleon has done, wants this great epic battle. He wants to have 500,000 against 500,000, and one battle uh, to uh, decide the fate of everything. Mm. He's also very um, cautious. He does not want this to be a total war. Mm -hmm. People like Scott and later on Grant and Sherman want that they believe the best way to make this war end is a total war. You go after the civilians, you go after farms and homes. And McClellan was very hesitant towards that. And so uh, he wants this to be one big field of battle, hundreds of thousands against hundreds of thousands decide the fate right then and there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, there is a lot of um, conflict he asks uh, for, and he does get 100,000 more men to be uh, uh, put under his command of the Army of Potomac, but he says that that's not nearly enough, that he wants another 100,000 men. He wants a force of 270,000 men in his army alone to then go after uh, the Confederate army. Uh, And Scott is very hesitant and the administration is very hesitant to give him any more men. In November of 1861, Winfield Scott retires and Abraham Lincoln makes McClellan general in chief of the army. Uh, And Lincoln is a bit concerned about McClellan now taking on not just the role of the Army of the Potomac and defending Washington, D.C., but being the general in charge of the entire army and the entire operation of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And he starts bringing these uh, things up to him. And McClellan has this famous quote that he says, I can do it all. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so Lincoln uh, gives it to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is during this time that we start seeing some major splits between Lincoln and McClellan. And a lot of this has to do with uh, the politics of the two men um, and the way that both men wanted this war to be fought. Uh, So McClellan was this, uh, on a political note, was a a moderate. He was a Whig. Uh, He uh, thought that Lincoln was a little bit radical in the things that he wanted. Uh, He was fighting this war to bring the southern states back into the Union, and that was it. Mm -hmm. Um, This whole idea of the federal government stepping in and saying that uh, the enslaved people in the South uh, needed to be freed that really uh, uh, did not agree with McClellan. McClellan thought that that was not going to achieve your goal. If your goal Mm. is to bring the Union together, then we can't talk about the issue of slavery right now. We just need to get these uh, states back into the Union. Uh, This would come up many other times. Also, McClellan was a bit of this elitist, and Mm -hmm. Lincoln was a a self-taught lawyer Mm -hmm. uh, from the western portion uh, of the country, and uh, there there uh, several letters that McClellan writes back to his wife saying, I've just met with the president. Uh, Lincoln is a well-meaning baboon. Oh, uh, he, no. is, uh, he is a gorilla, which uh, I have to say that Lincoln's beard is not doing him any favors in this uh, uh, in this description. Uh, he, he, there's a bit of a simian look to it. Oh, um, no. But uh, it, it, 
thought that Lincoln was utterly incompetent and was undeserving of this post of being president. At one point, uh, Lincoln and the cabinet, they go to the field to try and meet with McClellan. And McClellan had um, gone to the wedding of some of his officers, uh, or the, an officer had gotten married, and uh, McClellan attended that wedding and got back to the house that he was staying at and was made aware that the president of the United States was there to see him. And uh, McClellan said that he needed to retire and that he could not meet with the president. Uh, and so uh, but the, uh, so then he goes upstairs and he retires. And then 30 minutes later, the servant comes back down and tells the president that he's gone to sleep. And this was looked on by a lot of other people as being a, a, an utter affront. How do you treat the president of the United States this way? Um, Lincoln took it in stride. He said, this is not a time for manners and politeness. Uh, if this is the man who's going to get this war won, we can meet at another time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it shows you a bit about both of their characters and, a, and the friction between the two. Mm -hmm. Uh so uh, he is given command of the entire army by uh, November of 1861, and uh, he uh, reorganizes it, makes a new army of the Potomac. Uh, it takes him about three months to do so, and in uh, the spring of 1862, uh, he proposes his plan on how they are going to uh, invade uh, Virginia, how they are going, the Confederates have set up their capital in Richmond, just across the river from Washington, D.C., and how they're going to capture Richmond, uh, capture the Confederate government, bring the war to a close. Uh, so this is called the Peninsula Campaign. And so uh, he comes up with this idea that was pretty novel at the time of having an amphibious landing into Virginia. So not crossing right over uh, the river by foot, but by taking men by boat all the way around the river and up uh, and, and then landing uh, at, at Yorktown. Uh, and so uh, he brings uh, 120,000 men uh, all the way uh, out of the port and up the river and uh, landing in Virginia. And uh, he, his plan is to uh, lay siege uh, to Richmond. Again, this lesson from the Mexican-American War, siege tactics against uh, this capital. Uh, so uh, they uh, go ahead uh, with this plan. Uh, he arrives in March of uh, 1862. Uh, there's tons, tons of equipment and cannons coming in on these boats. Uh, and McClellan is getting reports that Richmond is being defended by two to 300,000 uh, Confederate soldiers. Uh, and these reports are coming to him from the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons would become the great detective agency of the uh, 18 and early 1900s. Uh, they were supposed to have the best knowledge out of anyone. They had the best spies anywhere. And they are telling him that there's 300,000 men. And he knows that he has a force of 120,000 men. Mm -hmm. He was a man who was not going to take those odds. He was not going to send his men into a battle mm -hmm. that would uh, be against an enemy that was twice or three times as large as them. Mm -hmm. uh, these numbers were not correct. Uh, 
So he did have the superior numbers. Uh, his numbers were based off of all of the men that were able to fight. Mm-hmm. So not including cooks and uh, people who uh, were there just for support and wagon trains and things. But he, 120 are the fighting men. Mm-hmm. The numbers he was getting were, first of all, way off. And secondly, uh, did not include uh, that the Confederates also had men that were in the ranks but were not actually fighting so cooks and wagon trains and all of that so he was really dealing with a force of between 40 to 70,000 uh, confederate troops wow. but the confederates knew that they were tricking mcclelland because magruder he had his men walk in a circle so that it looked like it was one continuous line of troops mm-hmm. going around and it, and it never stopped. This line never stopped. But in reality, it was this small group that was walking in a circle to make it look like their numbers were much larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Confederates also uh, made it look like they had a whole bunch of guns, a whole bunch of cannons everywhere because they uh, uh, chopped down trees and painted them black and then put them into the fence lines. So the Union troops are looking at this, seeing all of these cannons and all of these men in this impregnable uh, fortress. And so they're very cautious as they go through uh, mm-hmm. in these uh, uh, early months of uh, 1862. Uh, but th- there are some uh, battles. So Battle of uh, Williamsburg and Seven Pines. And these are victories for the Union force because the Confederates have, have half less than half the number of the Union troops. But McClellan is very cautious and wary about what he does next. At one point, the Union Army gets so close to Richmond that they can hear the church bells go off Mm -hmm. uh, and they can hear the bells uh, going off inside the city of Richmond. Um, But uh, in June of 1862, Robert E. Lee takes a command of the Army of Northern Virginia and uh, he has a much smaller force, but he is a quick maneuver. Uh, he, he moves his troops around the field much quicker than McClellan does. So with a force of 30,000, he can make it look like they are much bigger. Mm-hmm. And McClellan does not like the looks of this. He thinks that he has way, he does not have nearly enough men to fight this army of 200, 300,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually McClellan, uh, he, uh, 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 Leaves. Uh, he brings all 120,000 Union troops. He takes them back on the boats, brings them back up to Washington, D.C. Uh, once he returns, uh, uh, General Pope in the Union Army, he leads the Battle of Second Manassas, and that was another disaster for the Union. So Lincoln is looking at his options, and he doesn't like McClelland, but McClelland at least has achieved some victories. So Mm -hmm. he gives command uh, again uh, to McClelland uh, and makes him commander of the Army uh, of the Potomac, uh, but now his force is completely scattered. Uh, So he had to reorganize the Army of the the Potomac. Uh, The first time it took him four or five months. Uh, Now it is September of 1862, and Lee is invading Maryland. Mm. Uh, He has five days. And so in five days, he completely reorganizes uh, the uh, Union Army. He has troops. Over 30% of the troops that he's in charge of have never seen battle in their lives. That is uh, uh, over 80% of the Confederate troops have seen four or five battles already. Mm -hmm. So the odds he 
sees as being completely against him. He also has this idea that he does not have the right numbers. And so he, but he prepares his army. What everyone says about him, although they say that he, many people call him a coward, they call him timid, but they say he was a great organizer. Mm -hmm. And so he completely reorganized uh, all of the people in his command Mm -hmm. uh, and got them ready uh, to uh, go up against Lee uh, and the Army of Northern Virginia in September of 1862. Uh, So uh, Lee uh, invades into Maryland, and uh, there is a discovery that happens uh, in uh, the early days of September. Uh, And it is orders that General Lee has sent to his men. Uh, uh, talking about troop movements. So uh, McClelland, now he finds these orders. There are men who find it. It's a piece of paper that's wrapped around some cigars. And they take the paper. These are orders from General Lee himself. So now McClelland knows exactly where the enemy is and what they're Uh, what their orders are. And so there are a lot of historians that now point to this and say, you know everything. Why didn't you end the war right then and there uh, and go up against him? But if you look at the reality of the situation, these orders were already a few days old and there wasn't a whole lot McClellan could do with this information. Still, he sits on it and he thinks and he plans for Mm -hmm. a full day and a half before making any decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, He uh, does end up sending uh, General Hooker uh, up to South Mountain. And because of that victory for the Union troops, that pushes the Southern troops back down and it pushes the Confederate troops to Antietam Creek. September 17th, 1862, uh, McClellan still is under the impression that he is up against a force of 250,000 men Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and that his force uh, of uh, 80,000 is not nearly enough uh, against these Confederate numbers. Uh, But he thinks that if he does the right flanking maneuver, that he possibly could get the Southern troops to leave Maryland. He's not thinking about ending the war right here. He's just concerned about getting the Confederates to leave Maryland. Uh, So uh, there is a great battle uh, that was fought. Antietam uh, is one of the uh, biggest battles uh, of of the war, one of the most known days in American history. Uh, And there are so many things that went wrong on the Union side. Uh, A lot of people point to his hesitation. There's also bad communication. He did not talk to his subordinates enough about uh, what the plan was, Uh, the big idea. He told them, I need you to go to this hill here, but not what happens once you've taken that hill. What are we all going to do then? Mm -hmm. Also, Burnside's is not listening. Uh, He is also hesitating on top of McClellan, who's already hesitating. Despite all of this, this becomes what people say as a Union victory by the fact that the Confederates do leave uh, Antietam. But this is known as the single bloodiest day in American history. Mm. Uh, There are over 22,726 casualties. Uh, The bloodiest day in American history, um, but it does allow for uh, the the, the Southern Army to leave Maryland, and that is seen as a victory. Uh, the next day, McClellan's going over the numbers. Should I pursue? Well, I've lost 12,000 men. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my officers uh, are gone, are dead, are critically wounded. Uh, how am I going to go after this superior force in his mind mm-hmm. uh, with uh, an army that's completely decimated? Uh, and so he decides to stay in Maryland and not pursue Lee further. Um 
and then this little bit of a victory in Antietam, this horrible battle, but the fact that the South does retreat allows for Lincoln to have the political capital to then issue the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22nd. Uh, so this uh, was a, a huge deal that now when they do go south, when they do go into these Confederate states, uh, the army now has the right to free those enslaved uh, in the Confederate states. Mm-hmm. Uh, McClelland does not like this at all. He thinks that it is um, radical, that it is going to push away uh, the the slave states that are uh, still loyal to the Union, like Kentucky and Delaware and Maryland, um, and uh, that it's it's not part of this war, that this war is simply about bringing the South back into the Union. It's not about slavery. Um, And this causes even more strife between McClelland and Lincoln. By October, McClelland is still right where he was, in Maryland, where Antietam was fought. Uh, And Lincoln goes to him, and there's this famous picture uh, taken by Brady. that You see the two of them in this camp, and they're not having a good discussion. Mm. And uh, uh, talking about, why haven't you gone south? Why haven't you gone to Virginia? And uh, McClellan talks about that he needs more men, he needs more men, uh, that his men are not trained, uh, that the horses are fatigued. At one point, there's this famous letter that Lincoln sends saying, uh, tell me, sir, uh, what have the horses been doing that they are so fatigued? Uh, this was, uh, uh, that, that's a big, uh, comeback in the 1860s, folks. That is, uh, those are harsh words. Um, so Lincoln has already made his decision that he has to get rid of McClellan, but McClellan is so loved by the troops. At one point, uh, they talk about this description of, uh, uh, during, uh, one of the earlier battles that McClellan is pointing to, uh, General Hooker as to where the Union Army needs to go next. And there's this fog all over the ground and all of the men are in line and they're just cheering him and cheering him. Uh, General McClellan, uh, hurrah, hurrah. And they loved him so a lot of that because he was not going to take his much smaller or his much diminished force and go out the next day Mm -hmm. that he wanted to make sure that these men were taken care of before he used them again. Now, you take someone like Grant and Sherman, if they had fought at Antietam, they would have gone the next day, no matter what, no matter how many men had died, and they would have followed the enemy, and they would have taken them down. And on top of that, they would have burned whatever plantations and homes were there along the way. Right. And that won the war. McClellan didn't win the war. Yeah. Grant and Sherman won the war. Uh, mm. And uh, uh, so by November, he uh, Lincoln has the midterms. After the midterms, he then fires McClellan. And McClellan uh, goes back uh, up to uh, New York. And uh, in 1864, uh, he uh, runs for the Democratic nomination uh, for the president of the United States. He disagrees with the Democratic Party on the war. The Democratic Party wants to give in completely. Let the South be their own country. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, McClellan still believes in bringing the Union back together, just that the federal government has no jurisdiction and telling these states what they're going to do about slavery. Uh, So he is this very constitutionally minded person who has these strict convictions uh, that doesn't agree with his party because he really never was a Democrat to begin with. He just doesn't like Lincoln. Um, Well, 
Lincoln wins in a landslide. Uh, McClelland, uh, after the war, uh, he goes off uh, to Europe and uh, he uh, travels Europe for a long time. He comes back to the United States. Uh, he becomes the governor of New Jersey. Uh, for a term, uh, he uh, continues in Democratic Party politics. He becomes a writer. Uh, he uh, writes his memoirs, but they are not published um, uh, before his death. Mm. And uh, he died uh, at 58 uh, in 1885. Um, the, there are, uh, I mean, the Civil War is something that people have written thousands of books about. And mm -hmm. a lot of them look at McClellan, uh, whether you are from the South or the North, as either being inept or being a coward. Some people even call him a traitor. Um, I think that in the long run, he gets sort of a bad rap, that mm. he did what he could with what he thought he had. And uh, one of my favorite historians, uh, Shelby Foote, uh, he uh, talks about McClellan uh, that uh, he said, and Shelby Foote, he, he is, you, you've, those of you who love history have probably seen the Civil War documentary, and he's the guy from Mississippi with the beard and the pipe and just what you want a historian to look <laughs> and sound like. And so Shelby Foote talks like this, and he says, well, McClellan, uh, he was not as good as a, in a fight as he was an organizer. <laughs> and uh, he was the most popular general with the troops. He was, uh, they, they would stop and cheer for him every time they saw him, and Grant was not going to have that same kind of support. And uh, whatever the Army of the Potomac did in the following years is due to the training that McClellan ha gave them in that first year. And I think that's uh, absolutely true, that he creates this army and then trains them, and then it is up to men like Grant to use them and, uh, and, and uh, continue on no matter how many men are killed or maimed or wounded. The next day, you get on your horse and you ride again. Mm -hmm. And you think about it, McClellan... He was trying to save lives by keeping these men as well rested as, as possible. Mm -hmm. Grant was trying to save men by ending the war as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did. Uh, uh, whether we like his tactics or not, the war ended. Uh, and McClellan wasn't able to achieve that. Uh, so... Uh, a very uh, interesting figure. Uh, I will also leave off with uh, a quote from Robert E. Lee. Uh, at one point, uh, Robert E. Lee was asked by his cousin who was the greatest general of the Union forces, uh, and Lee answered, McClellan, by all odds. Uh, so uh, he uh, recognized uh, uh, how great a commander McClellan was and that people were not giving him the credit uh, that he was due. Uh, so I think that there are a lot of things in this chart uh, that make a lot of sense. One thing I left out uh, is that he spoke seven different languages. Wow. Uh, so, oh, my uh, gosh. When, when you talked about the communication interpreter, that wasn't his job, but he <laughs> learned seven different languages. Yeah. Uh, so much uh, other things. I mean, karma connected to war. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so many uh, other things make uh, a whole lot of sense. Wow, that is uh, very, very interesting because um, there's so much in this chart that matches what you said, you know. I mean, a lot of times, honestly, your best strategizer, if you've got a good Capricorn, they are your best strategizer. And if, I guess if people 
uh, I mean, having insight, like being able to look at this chart and understanding what's happening, I do have to say, I'm not sure that this is the right birth time because I'm not sure that these things are falling in the fourth and fifth house, but, um, definitely issues with war here in the seventh and eighth house in Aries here with the North node in, uh, Scorpio, because at this time, Scorpio was ruled by Mars and, you know, having the troops love him with the, um, uh, 11th house cusp in cancer and Saturn in cancer nurturing. He was nurturing to his troops, you know? So, I mean, and just all of this Capricorn and, and Aquarius and planning and thinking and really making sure, you know, that he was doing the right thing. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, uh, it, it, it all plays out in his chart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, on our scale of right on the money to way out in outer space, this is uh, pretty close to uh, right on the money. <laughs> uh, well, uh, that wraps up this episode of History and Retrograde. We'd like to thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to uh, support the show, we have all of the links provided to our social media accounts in the episode description. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to uh, have a suggestion uh, for a new uh, topic, uh, you can send that in uh, to uh, historyandretrograde at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, we also have a link there to our PayPal account. Every little bit helps us in producing a better quality show and expanding our audience. And if you would like to be your own Mystery History guest, we can make that happen. Uh, just uh, send an email to chandlersmom at historyandretrograde.com. Mom will get with you about all the details. <laughs> yes, I will. And also for the month of May, I really want to meet you guys. So I am offering five minutes for free. So I know that doesn't sound maybe like a lot of time for free, but I can do a lot of things in five minutes. And then you can decide if you want to continue with that appointment or if you want to book another one. And I'm booking up for <laughs> May because I'm kind of putting it out there right now. So it's kind of fun. Also, in case you're not aware, uh, we have a YouTube channel, History and Retrograde. And uh, the videos from season one have been uh, really getting a lot of views, which is a lot of fun. And on YouTube, you can see where I am describing uh, the chart and pointing out certain things on the chart, which can help you learn astrology if you're interested in that, but also just clarify things that are going on. So um, yeah. And Nathan, thank you. This is awesome. Um, I'm very excited. I'm excited for spring. I am excited uh, for eclipse season. We're in the middle of eclipse season, if you're not aware. And we are in the middle of Mercury retrograde until I think mid-May. I'd have to check the dates. But um, <laughs> strap yourselves in. It's going to be a fun ride. Uh, yeah, and we're, we'll keep you updated on uh, all the other uh, placements of the stars and planets uh, as we go along this uh, uh, fun little spring that we're having. <laughs> uh, so uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, and uh, as always, in conclusion, as long as your houses are in order and the stars are aligned, everything will be just fine. Everything is going to be just fine. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much.
拜。